This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. You ready? I was born ready. Welcome to an action-packed advisory opinions podcast. And it's, Sarah, it's not going to be action-packed exclusively with election fraud litigation analysis. In fact, that might not even be 40% of this podcast, may not even be 30% of this podcast. We're already moving on. Not everybody's moving on, but we're already moving on. Would you say that we have a vote fraud quota system? (laughs) Oh, now that's a nice uh, that's a nice tease for the for the core of the podcast. So here's what we're going to do: we are going to uh, begin by talking about vote fraud litigation, and there were pretty significant developments uh, towards the end of last week and moving into the weekend. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Then we're going to talk about the First Circuit race based admissions decision at Harvard, and I know we both have some thoughts about that. Then we're going to talk about a decision that blocked DACA repeal um, from the Trump administration here in the closing days of the Trump administration. And we're going to wind up with a little bit of a pop culture discussion of the one show that until recently, Sarah, was uniting all of America. And that is The Mandalorian. They canceled Baby Yoda, David. They canceled Baby Yoda. You cannot cancel Baby Yoda. Babies are going to no, be babies. Cannot. I mean, come on. But <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But let's get started. All right. So the the sort of the nutshell summary of what happened over the last few days is that the core key claims that uh, of the major lawsuits uh, challenging the results in Pennsylvania and Michigan and to and, and to an, a lesser extent um, in Arizona, detonated. So in Pennsylvania, this was the sort of the really big development. The Trump campaign filed an amended complaint that we can go into that removed from the field some of their major allegations that could impact enough enough ballots to change the outcome in theory, in theory, if everything went perfectly for them and it was never going to. But in theory, could alter the outcome of the state uh, of the presidential election in the state. A Michigan judge um, eviscerated, just eviscerated the affidavits filed in support of a motion to 
prevent the certification of Detroit's or Wayne County, Michigan's election results. And then a lawyer for the Trump campaign dropped its so-called Sharpie Gate lawsuit in Maricopa County. So we're going to go through that, not so much Maricopa County. We're going to go through that. But Sarah, I have a unified theory of what's happening right now in the vote fraud allegation arena. I'm here for it. You're here for it. So as the concrete allegations of vote fraud have evaporated, in other words, no evidence of thousands of dead people voting, in some instances, no evidence of any dead people voting, or no evidence of violations of the Constitution on observer requirements, or no evidence to support all of the Twitter rumors about ballot dumping, blah, blah, blah. Nothing has really slowed down on the right in believing that the election was illegitimate. So what this reminds me of is Skynet. Skynet, Sarah. So you remember- James Bond Skynet? Nope. Skynet, the Terminator series. Oh, Terminator. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. So if you remember, Skynet, once they plugged it in, became a self-aware, um, a self-aware entity engaging in trillions of computations per second, perceived the um, uh, American people as, a, or perceived humanity as a threat and launched ther- thermonuclear war, okay? What I'm saying is that a segment of the right-wing public has become its own self-aware vote fraud conspiracy theory computational machine and is now creating and fabricating and and loosing upon the land vote fraud theories at a sort of a geometric rate that bear increasingly no relationship to the real world at the same time as the actual claims in court are just evaporating just evaporating but the conviction of vote fraud is not Uh, It's just the theories are constantly morphing. So what we have is Skynet, an independently existing, self-aware, vote fraud, computational conspiracy machine. I also think there is something to this idea that because, um, and I don't think it's fair to say all of Republicans or even all of the right, I think it's this very online segment um, of Trump favoring Republicans who want to believe this. And because they want to believe this, they're willing to jump from fraud lily pad to fraud lily pad as each one sinks or gets debunked or fails in court, et cetera. And so the one that I got really into was this um, Benford's Law theory. David, mm, are you oh, aware yeah. of the Benford's Law theory? So this yeah. is, uh, Benford's Law is a real thing, though bizarre, in which um, in any set of naturally occurring numbers, naturally, not necessarily like in the natural order of things, but it can be the length of rivers in the world or um, uh, a part of an accounting book. The leading digit is more likely to start with one than two, more likely to start with two than three, et cetera, all the way up to nine, which will be the least likely number. And it follows more or less a logarithmic scale on that. And so um, folks were looking at precinct data and saying that Biden's vote totals violated Benford's law, that they were in fact more likely to start with four, five, and six than they were with one, two, and nine, let's say. And like this went like wildfire because like, say it's a law and it violated the law. And they do (laughs) use this 
um, in accounting, not to convict people of accounting fraud, but to spot it in the first place to say right. like, Hey, it's worth digging into this and seeing if there's accounting fraud, um, because the books don't seem to be following Benford's law, um, in terms of, uh, uh let's say in a medical, um, reimbursement practice, the claims that they're making for reimbursement don't follow Benford's law. And as long as there's, you know, enough of them, here's the problem with the precinct data, of course, David, um, precincts are intentionally created to have approximately equal numbers of people in them. So they are not naturally occurring groups of people. They all tend to be about the same size. The other problem is, of course, in an election, um, you're talking about two people vying for votes. So it's not a random set of numbers that Biden's getting, really. He's getting the inverse of whatever Trump is getting. For the most part, that's going to split roughly 50-50 in a close election. And so let's say that, generally speaking, you're looking at about 1,000 people per precinct. You're going to end up with 400 to 600 a lot more often than you're going to end up with 100 to 900. And so for a lot of reasons, yep, Benford's law does not apply to voting. Shout out, by the way, to the guys at Radio Lab for their awesome work on this. And they talked to one scientist um, who actually is looking at whether you can, and he's done this for decades. So this is not like this 2020 election, but he has looked at whether you can use the second digit of precinct data to look for election fraud mm-hmm. in other countries across the world. And um, it is Benford law esque. Right. he would say, for that second digit, which is fascinating. And by the way, when he looked at his Benford Law-esque way of looking at second digits and precinct data, I know you'll be shocked to hear this, David. It looked just good, just fine. He said it was a near-perfect election. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you explained that because I that has been going, That you know, it's, it's really hard because you feel like you're playing whack-a-mole. There's you know, you'll you'll see this online, and 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 you're exactly right to emphasize this is very is very online. But so you'll see something online, it'll be like, I noticed something fascinating about the precinct results in so and so so and so counties. Buckle up for this thread on Benford's law, one out of twenty five. And you look at it, and it has this veneer of expertise. It has this veneer of sophistication. In much the same way like the, that the Dominion voting systems conspiracy theory does, the hammer and scorecard conspiracy theory does. And one of these, these, I think about when you're talking about mathematical laws or when you're talking about software, who is it that said that technology when, suffici- when sufficiently advanced appears to the public as if like it's magic? In- right. Well, and that's some of the problem with Benford's law. It looks like anyone should be able to put in these numbers into an Excel sheet, look at Benford's law, and then just look at the first digit. And what a bunch of these you know, professors were saying was like, I, that's obviously too simple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the problem you have is when you have expertise, per, jargon versus jargon. Exactly. And, 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 a, have- and, a, and the lowest level of trust and expertise in our lifetime. Zero level of trust and expertise, jargon versus jargon. You don't understand, you don't truly understand the the allegation. And so therefore you don't truly understand the rebuttal, but the allegation matches with who you trust and distrust. You reach a position where it's virtually impossible. And this is also the true with 
uh, anecdotes. Um, I just, I had this really interesting exchange with somebody I'd known for years and years and years. Awesome, just awesome guy. And he was, he sent a note sort of out of the blue saying, I was really convinced by these dispatch fact checks until I saw this. And he linked to a story, not a story, a uh, Facebook entry from somebody who's saying, well, um, my, my wife, someone voted under my wife's maiden name in a state we used to live in. And now there's no really evidence given to the support this. Um, no real, you know, the state wasn't even explained. It turns out the allegation, it wasn't even in a swing state. But the fact that one person could make a claim that their wife, someone voted in their wife's name in another state, threw everything in back open again. Like the fact that that allegedly could happen to one person, even though it wasn't proven, there wasn't any evidence, could just threw it all back open again. And I think that's part of the power that you see. For example, when Tucker Carlson will get on TV and he'll say, John Smith was dead and voted anyway. Well, that's one person, even if it's true. And in local news, un, you know, showed that a couple of his examples were just flat out not true, and we're still investigating the others. That's just one example. But what ends up happening is that one example works in a mind, and then says, if one person can do it, can't a hundred and fifty thousand people do it? <laughs> and it opens that back up again, and it becomes incredibly difficult to deal with. Now, David, can I? Um... But we've said why the fraud allegations are not substantiated in the facts, why these cases are all going to fail in their goal of overturning the election, even if they prove um, occasional uh, voter fraud, which very much can and does exist. But here's where I think they are in the. Here's where I think what they're feeling. And I am sympathetic to it. Mm -hmm. Um. Four years ago, Donald Trump was elected um, in, you know, surprising fashion. And the Democrats, and I don't mean like the elite Democrats, I mean online Democrats, said Mm -hmm. that Russia had meddled in the election and given the election to Donald Trump. Not that they had influenced it on Facebook, like the indictment said, but that, you know, if you asked most Democrats in 20 late 2017, early 2018, they would say that Russia itself changed the results of the election to give it to Donald Trump. And for four years, they basically pursued that as a theory, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, elite Democrats did too, of course, with the Russia investigation. I mean, going on Rachel Maddow's show every night, you would think that they were moments away from proving that that election had been fraudulent. Yeah. And even when the Mueller report came back and said that the campaign had not worked with the Russians, that the Russian influence campaign um, had been successful, but that that campaign's goals were to sow discord through online, um, through Facebook and things like that, that didn't really stop this idea that Donald Trump was an illegitimate president to huge swaths of the left. Right. Then you have Stacey Abrams' election uh, campaign in Georgia, where she lost by a wider margin than Donald Trump did. She never conceded the race and instead spent years on cable news saying that it was a fraudulent election. And what happened in both of those cases was that the mainstream media and you know what, David, 
even folks like us treated that. Um, maybe we said it was wrong, but we treated it as not crazy. We were like, well, Stacey Abrams lost and maybe she should concede, but, you know, uh, voter suppression is bad. And, you know, like uh, uh, there was a host over the weekend or on Friday, I forget, um, um, on CNN who said, yeah, but she then started a nonprofit to turn out voters, to combat voter suppression. And like, she really turned that to good. Why is that relevant if you're these folks on the right when she never conceded the race and instead undermined trust in, in Georgia's election system? Now, do I think there's a big difference between the sitting president of the United States doing it and a candidate for Georgia governor who did not hold elected office and could sit on just cable news? Of course I do. There's a huge difference in the impact of those things. But it's incredibly frustrating, I think, if you're a Trump supporter to be told that, well, yours doesn't count. And I can see why then they're like, well, if that's the game we're playing, then we're just going to play it. And yes, it means every time, similar to the Russia thing, that they disprove one allegation, we're just going to move to the next one because that's what gets rewarded right now. And so by golly, we're going to follow that playbook. Um, I see why it's frustrating to them. I think that there is some hypocrisy here that the left is unwilling to recognize, even though I do think there is, again, a huge difference between a sitting president of the United States doing it. Yeah, I think what I, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a really important uh, emotional issue that's underlying a lot of this is that, you know, for a long time, there were an awful lot of people on the left who believed that Russia didn't manipulate the ele- didn't just manipulate the election by introducing by the hack and leak, for example, or by the memes, but by actually going into the voting machines and monkeying with the vote totals. There was a point, I think, at which there was sort of like this let's just be completely honest about this. People are willing to believe conspiracy theories in the absence of evidence that support their side. And so there was some abundant amount of polling immediately after 2016, where a lot of Republicans just flatly disbelieved that Russia interfered at all. And a lot of, and a majority, I believe two thirds of Democrats believed that the Russians monkeyed with the actual results themselves. They actually adjusted the results, the vote counts themselves. So both of them were wrong, and yet both of them were believed by overwhelming majorities of people. And the vote suppression thing with Stacey Abrams, you know, this is part of the, you know, there, there, this is part of this, um, um, you know, dysfunction often in left-wing media that essentially says, we're going to fact check the heck out of the right, and we're not going to hold some of the wildest claims on the left up to the same level of scrutiny. And in fact, we're not even going to really believe or argue or discuss them as wild at all. I mean, what Stacey Abrams did in Georgia was refuse to concede an election where it was patently obvious that she lost, patently obvious, and refused to concede and then became a heroine in part for her refusal to concede. And so, yeah, I totally get it that at an emotional level, the pounding on the right for its conspiracy theories was noticeably not so diligent on the part of elite media outlets. But the problem that I have with and that those is- those same people are waxing poetic about how important it is to accept results. And when you press them on the Stacey Abrams example, it's like awkward silence, some reasons. Well, it's different. I don't have to tell you why. Like there is no answer for why 
again, set aside that one's president and one was a candidate, why it's okay for one person not to accept the results of the election and for all of us to say that that was, you know, uh, fighting for democracy and for the other person not to accept the results of the election that was by a smaller margin and say that that is undermining democracy, it's breaking norms, it's unprecedented. I, I think to a lot of these people, it's pretty rich. Yeah, no, it unquestionably is. The problem that I have is we then say, but then therefore it's okay for me to escalate. Like it's not even mm -hmm. a fight fire with fire anymore. It's you lit a bonfire and that was wrong. So I'm going to light a house fire. And then when you, when you call out my house fire, I'm going to say, well, look at your bonfire over there. And that's true. The but I think there, this is where what the media did had an impact because by doing that, by treating them so differently, what that signals is, um, maybe there was fraud, maybe there wasn't fraud, but if they could have done it, they would have done it. They are, they so hate Trump voters. They so hate Donald Trump that they would have done anything to ensure that Donald Trump didn't get four more years, whether they did or didn't hard to say. And I think there's a plenty of Republican voters out there who totally understand that A, this election is not getting overturned and B, that, um, yeah, probably Joe Biden won fair and square. But that doesn't mean that they don't believe um, that it that, that if Donald Trump had been winning, that something would have happened to prevent him from winning. You know what I mean? Because right. they spent four years saying that he wasn't a legitimate president um, and that the people who said he wasn't a legitimate president were given a uh, fair airing of their thoughts and not a lot of pushback, um, you know, despite increasingly little evidence to support it. And that Stacey Abrams was invited on cable shows over and over and over and over and over again. You know, one of the things I think is absolutely true is if you had the same, if you had the polling miss just a little bit bigger and Trump won and we'd already had pre-election intelligence reports that Russia was wanting to interfere, right now there would be an enormous, I was, can you have an enormous cottage industry? You cannot. <laughs> <laughs> there would be a huge industry of speculation about how Russia has, uh, altered the results. Like that would be, rampant right now. I mean, I don't think there's any question about that, but what's incumbent upon like people, you and I, like you and I is to say, whoa, <laughs> whoa, where's, where's the beef? Where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? And that's something I spent a ton of time in 2016, 2017, 2018 writing about. And that it was to say, look, there's evidence that Russia tried to interfere. No question about that. You got to acknowledge that it's there. I mean, you know, you had the indictments, you had the hack and leak, but there's just no evidence that they, that they messed with the voting results. There's just no evidence. And moreover, it's impossible to say that that influence operation affected the outcome of the election. When you have an election that close, 15 things could impact the, op the outcome of the election. So you spent week after week, month after month, saying, on the one hand, you can absolutely condemn Russian influence, the Russian influence operation. And the other hand, you have to also say Tr Donald Trump's a legitimate president of the United States. You can acknowledge both of those things at the same time. And, you know, one of the things I think um, is happening right now, it's almost as if there is a, an argument that Joe Biden is not legitimate, but without the Russian influence operation... <laughs> 
And, and that's, that's what's so distressing is that the predicate for the sort of next stage of the conspiracy theory doesn't even exist at all. Um, in 2016, you did have a Russian influence operation that then people took too far. And in 2020, you don't have that sort of predicate mass of, of wrongdoing that then people take too far. They're ma- fabricating the predicate mass of wrongdoing and then taking the fabricated predicate mass too far, if that makes sense. Well, back to our voter fraud cases, by the way. So over the weekend, Donald Trump tweeted, many of the court cases being filed all over the country are not ours, but rather those of people who have seen horrible abuses. Our big cases showing the unconstitutionality of the 2020 election and the outrage of things that were done to change the outcome will soon be filed. David, is there any, uh, will you fact check that tweet for me? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's impossible to fact check because soon is not a defined term. Well, how many are the court cases that are currently being filed on behalf of the campaign? Some of them are, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, including the ones that we have spent a considerable amount of time talking about. So, yeah, the campaign itself has fired its shots. Maybe not all the shots it intends to fire, but it has fired many shots at the process. So, yeah, that that is that is a... How shall I put this charitably? A deceptive. Just a deceptive tweet. Uh, um, speaking of imminence, that we're not sure how what soon means in that tweet. Uh, next week, or sorry, Thursday, Thursday this week, we will be talking about imminence in the First Amendment context, which I think will be very exciting. Yes, it will. I'm actually really looking forward to that conversation because you will not believe how many times I'm asked about that as somebody who has uh, engage, you know, done first amendment litigation for years and years. Well, let's, let's, cause we need to get the first circuit. Let's quickly look at some of the details of what's happened in these two big suits. Um, we said earlier, the Sharpie gate Arizona case is being withdrawn. So forget about it. Let's go to the big ones. Big one. Number one, the Pennsylvania case that we talked about. And, and, um, this was the case where, they had the the um, Trump campaign had alleged that they were unable to adequately um, review the ballot, the mail-in ballot counting process, and that there was disparity in the opportunities given voters to cure defects in their absentee and mail-in ballots. Those were the big claims, and they sought a they sought an order of relief that would uh, refuse certification of the results of the Pennsylvania vote on that basis, on a Commonwealth-wide basis. Well, um, in the last couple of days, the campaign filed an amended complaint. And the amended complaint, very interestingly, remo- it still asks for this giant, um, this giant relief that refusal to certify the results of the entire election but it changes the claims that they're making and limits them to um, and, and removes a sort of sweeping challenge to all the ability to, to, to observe the mail-in balloting uh, process, counting process, and limits it to this much more narrow uh, category of those people who are allowed to cure defects and absentee and mail-in ballots and those who were not. And therefore... As a practical matter, it made the case not relevant to the results because the number of ballots of which this cure issue um, 
is, is relevant is much, much, much smaller than the margin of the case. And so what the Trump administration did is this, or Trump team did is amend this complaint into actual electoral irrelevance. At the same time, they've denied that they've done that, <laughs> but they did that. This and, is not the most surprising thing that happened this week to me. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Then, then the other interesting development is a Michigan, there was a uh, order in a state court case, Michigan state court case, uh, which was in, uh, responding to a Trump complaint about the absentee mail-in balloting process in Wayne County, which is where Biden racked up a huge margin. And there is, a, and we'll link to this in the show notes, but there's a really interesting thread from Andrew, Andrew Fleischman where he kind of walks through the affidavits that the Trump administration filed. And it shows the problem with sort of throwing rumors into court and swearing, uh, affidavits are sworn, sworn documents, swearing and attesting to uh, the veracity of essentially rumors. Um, I'll give you a good example. So there's this one individual who, who swore that she's witnessed misconduct, serious misconduct. As the court says, Ms. Jacobs' allegations made by Ms. Jacob are serious. However, Ms. Jacobs' information is generalized. It's behavior with no date, location, frequency, or names of employees. In addition, she offers no indication of whether she took steps to address the alleged misconduct or to alert any supervisor about the alleged fraud. She only came forward after unofficial results of the voting indicated that Vice President Biden was the winner of the state of Michigan. Um, that's the difference, Sarah, between Twitter evidence and court evidence. Um, also, there was interesting allegation that some of the concerns that were raised in the uh, complaint would have been addressed and had had the observers attended the orientation program <laughs> and they could have been better equipped to deal with the counting environment. I mean, you talk about watching a house of cards collapse, read that case, and we're going to put it in the show notes. Yeah. That one in particular reminded me of, you know, a whole lot of people don't know how this works in 2020 is the first time they've tuned in to how ballot counts come in, um, how precinct numbers are reported. And so they see things that seem fishy to them that aren't fishy if they had participated at this level of detail in any previous election cycle. And that can be very frustrating. I know in an era where we don't trust experts, but a whole bunch of quote unquote experts out there are banging their heads against a wall because, um, <laughs> you don't need to be necessarily an expert. You just need to have participated. Right. And that's frustrating. Right. Well, you know, one of the evidentiary um, claims is that there was a sort of this ballot dumping as, and someone brought in uh, ballots from a vehicle with an out-of-state plate. And the evidence was actually that a city used a rental truck to deliver ballots, which, Sarah, I don't know how many trucks you've rented over the course of your life, but I don't think I've ever rented a U-Haul that had a plate from the state in which I was renting the U-Haul. Not once. <laughs> so I, I would just encourage you, go down this and 
you know, go down this, this Twitter thread, which pulls out like segment after segment after segment of the opinion. And it just really does show the difference very starkly between Twitter evidence and court evidence. Um, what's sad is I think the number of people who have read and listened to and absorbed the Twitter evidence is going to be the tiniest fraction of the number of people who read and absorb the uh, court evidence. But we're doing our part, Sarah. <laughs> um, by the way, since we've been taping this podcast, um, one of the Michigan lawsuits was voluntarily dismissed by the Republicans bringing it. And um, one of the Georgia ones as well. And then also uh, a Wisconsin one. So right now the, the Trump folks are one and 24 in court. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what that sound you're hearing is the air going out of the judicial balloon. And there, yeah. there wasn't much air in it to begin with. But judging from the president's statements over the weekend, there is absolutely no air going out of his, uh, there is absolutely no air going out of his own vote fraud balloon that he is still doubling down on the idea that he won the election, which ultimately his belief about that is completely irrelevant. It doesn't mean that he can't do nefarious things between now and January, but there is a process in motion that he cannot stop. He and the interesting part has been, will continue to be when Mitch McConnell, Senate Republicans, et cetera, what will they use as the hook? I think at this point, they're planning to use the state certifications to say that the election's over. Um, that will be coming shortly. That's sort of the first next hook, if you will. But it will be very frustrating, David, if they say that, you know, no, it's when the electors are chosen by the state legislature, or no, it's when the electors send their votes to the president of the Senate, um, which right. is actually the, the basically the last step. That, to me, is pretty unacceptable. <laughs> um, could you condemn it in harsher terms? <laughs> Let's take a moment and thank our sponsor, the Act in Line podcast. Acton Line is the flagship podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, dedicated to the promotion of a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. With episodes released every Wednesday, Acton Line brings together writers, economists, religious leaders, thinkers, journalists, newsmakers, and more in conversations that bridge the gap between good intentions and sound economics. By demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free markets, conversations on Act in Line reveal how economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish, but also that the market can function only when people behave morally. Faith and freedom must go hand in hand. To subscribe to Act in Line, visit acton.org slash opinions or search Act in Line on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or where fine podcasts are available. That's acton.org slash opinions to subscribe. Um, all right. You ready for some affirmative action? Yes, I'm so ready for this because do you know what, how much I'm looking forward to getting to a point past this election where we're diving into things that really matter to people's lives and legal doctrines that really matter to people's lives that have no bearing 
and no relevance to an individual named Donald Trump. <laughs> well, then today's your lucky day. So yes, as we mentioned last week, the First Circuit ruled on this Harvard affirmative action case. They upheld Harvard's policies. We're going to dive into that opinion. But first, let's do a little walk down memory lane, shall we, David? Yes, let's do. So in 1978, there was the decision on affirmative action and racial quotas. That is Bakey. Um, This was about the uh, set-asides for minority students by the University of California Davis School of Medicine. And what that case said basically was that specific racial quotas are unconstitutional. So racial set-asides, unconstitutional, but the idea that you could use race in some way was upheld. Um, And it was a messy, messy opinion. Uh, One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight opinions were written in that. Um, You know, so-and-so joins us to parts two, three B, three C, four, five A, five B, and six. (laughs) (laughs) was not uncommon mm -hmm. in Bakey. So this left a ton of questions. So that's 1978. Fast forward to 2003, you get the Grutter and Gratz opinions. These are two separate opinions, both coming out of the University of Michigan. One is University of Michigan undergrad, which used basically a point system. And if you were a minority student, you got a plus number of points. Um, Uh, in this 20-point total to ensure that they were having diversity in their undergraduate class. In a 6-3 opinion, that was held as unconstitutional. Um, Interestingly, that was Rehnquist, O'Connor, Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas, with uh, Breyer joining in part. The dissent was Ginsburg, Souter, Breyer joining in part. Oh, Stevens, sorry. And Stevens. So um, 6-3 that the point system was too close to a racial set-aside. But then in Grutter, that one was for the law school. And this was like this, you know, holistic admissions policy and that was race conscious. And that one they upheld. And that was O'Connor, Stevens, Souter, Ginsburg, Breyer. Right. With Kennedy joining the dissent. That's going to be relevant in a middle in a minute. So that's 2003. They basically race conscious. Okay. But a racial point system was like a racial set aside. Okay. Fast forward to 2013. These are coming in closer succession, by the way, David. Yep. (laughs) And we have Fisher one. This is the University of Texas case. Uh, There's going to be Fisher 1 and Fisher 2. So 2013 is Fisher 1. This is where the Supreme Court held that strict scrutiny applied to affirmative action admissions policies in higher education. They voided the lower court's uh, ruling and sent it back to apply strict scrutiny because this was race conscious. Um, That case, Kennedy... Roberts, Scalia, Thomas, Breyer, Alito, and Sotomayor, all saying that you should apply strict scrutiny. Ginsburg was the lone dissent. Kagan took no part in it. Um, Cool, cool. So they send that back down, like I said. And in a surprise to no one, 
Three years later, Fisher, too, comes back up. This time, the lower courts applied strict scrutiny. Kennedy flips his vote from the Grutter and Gratz days and joins with the liberals upholding the University of Texas's race-sensitive, quote-unquote, policy. So that was Kennedy, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor. Um, and Kagan took no part again. Uh, so it was 4-4, but that upheld the lower, the lower court one. Okay. That brings us to now, to this Harvard policy. So let's walk through a little bit of that. And then, David, I'm turning it over to you. Here's just some fast facts about Harvard's policy. Basically, uh, Harvard has a race-conscious admissions policy. And in doing so, they claim that they're trying to create a holistic body, that they've looked at race-neutral options, that none of them will work. We can walk through some of those later. Um, they've looked through using socioeconomic status instead of race, and that won't work, which we can walk through later. And so using the Supreme Court's, you know, Bakey, Grutter, Gratz, Fisher 1, Fisher 2 line, the things that the that in this case the, uh, the appellate court, the First Circuit was applying are one, that you can't use racial balancing or quotas, and two, um, uh, that you can't use race as a mechanical plus factor. And three, that you don't have any workable race-neutral alternatives. So in this case, it was a two-judge panel. The third judge who heard the case has passed away. And so it was 2-0. One was a uh, George W. Bush appointee and one was a yep. Clinton appointee. And um, they held that Harvard does not intentionally discriminate against their Asian students despite yep. lots of evidence that they discriminate against Asian students. <laughs> yeah. And so the question is, David, before we dive into the nitty gritty of this case, do you think that there are four votes on the court to grant cert in this case? If so, who? Man, this is one of those court prediction. So I, I, you know, you know, Sarah, how much I love court, predi court predicting. Love it. Yes, love Love court predicting. This is one where I'm, I, I have to confess, I'm, I'm honestly stumped uh, because the, the jurisprudence is, is a mess. I mean, an absolute mess. And the, the quickest, the, the shortest way to unlock, uh, to sort of make sense of it to me is essentially what courts are saying is you can take race into account as long as you're not so brazen and obvious about it, as long as you're sort of dumping it into this almost impossible dis to decipher stew of factors that surround your, your decision-making process, even though the output like these, uh, you know, racial, the demographic output of your entering class has remarkable racial uniformity, for example, around Asian Americans and consistently discriminates against Asian Americans on all of sort of the objective factors, test scores, GPAs, et cetera, that that's just the happenstance of this incredibly complex process, which doesn't make much sense to me. It just, the, the, the jurisprudence seems to be saying, if you make it complicated enough, we're going to leave you alone. And um, are there... Are there four justices who have confidence that there can be a um, 
that there will be a radical revision of this incredibly complex process or that there's the will on the court. I, I don't know, Sarah. I am, I'm honestly completely stumped by that. Um, and I don't know if Justice Gorsuch wants to dive into it. I don't know. I, I don't think that, um, and you can tell me, you know, if you think I'm wrong based on their jurisprudence, but there's sort of nothing that I would recognize in Kavanaugh's jurisprudence unless I'm missing something, uh, you know, incredibly, uh, miss, unless I'm missing something obvious, Kavanaugh's jurisprudence or Roberts's jurisprudence that says that they would love to revisit this, completely mystified as to whether Amy Coney Barrett would want to revisit it. So I'm, I'm completely, I'm honestly stumped because for them to weigh in, they would have to unring a bell that they've been ringing for a while. and um, and, and sort of fix a, a jurisprudential mess that the court has created for decades. Are they willing to do it? Are they willing to wade in like that in such a consequential way on a process that impacts so many millions of Americans? I'm honestly stumped. I mean, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a good part of the question. On the one hand, you have O'Connor's opinion in Grutter, that Michigan case, where she said that affirmative action would, uh, you know, most likely be unnecessary in 25 years. Well, we're pretty close. That would, you know, we're we're eight years shy. Yeah. Um, by the time this got to the Supreme Court, we'd be closer to six years shy of that. You also have Justice Roberts in a case called Parents Involved saying um, the best way to end discrimination on the basis of race is to end discriminating on the basis of race. He clearly <laughs> yeah. feels that. And, um, yeah. you know, that being said, we've seen Roberts flip a few times, even when he's in the dissent, um, as he was in some of these cases. Uh, I think that it all turns on Gorsuch myself. I think you've got Alito and Thomas, obviously, as your two votes for cert, and then you're looking for two more. I think you've got Kavanaugh. Um, and I think the question is whether you have Gorsuch interested in in taking this case. It is a very well set up case because, yeah. and now we can dive into some of the facts here, but Harvard, as far as I'm concerned, um, is following what the Supreme Court has asked of them. It's just that I think what the Supreme Court has asked is an unworkable system. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. And so if the Supreme Court's going to say that you can take race into account, the higher admissions at a place like Harvard in particular, but at any of these schools, they have a certain number of students. So if you are taking race into account as a plus factor for some, you are by definition having to take race into account as a negative factor for others. How that is not discriminating on the basis of race, I do not understand. Of course it is. And the idea that they're not, quote, intentionally discriminating against Asian Americans, it, it doesn't stand up to logic. Because again, yeah. if it's a plus factor for some racial groups, it has to be a minus factor for other racial groups yeah. in order to keep your number of students the same every year, which Harvard fully acknowledges that they do. So if you're only taking 1,500 students, and you're using race for some of them, you're using race for all of them. Um, and, and this so, is not, yeah, you make a great point because this is a fixed pool. This is cannot possibly be an everybody wins scenario. That's right. And so um, 
I, I just, you can say that somehow it's okay to discriminate against Asian students, but I don't see how you can say that you're not. That's just not how math works. <laughs> so here's, here's where I think, here's how to unring this bell, I think. And here's where I think the jurisprudence, all right, y'all get ready to dive in, okay? Because this is where this stuff is, is really evidence of, this is almost textbook example of judicial engineering of outcomes. If you go back 20, 30, if you go back through all of this and here's sort of the fruit of the, one of the, the core issues. So Sarah and I have talked and you've heard us talk many times about the test. There's a test uh, that's often applied when, when you're talking about um, constitutional doctrine, strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny. Um, and that, you know, we've talked about strict in theory, fatal in fact, although it not in this case. But what's interesting here is there is a statute at issue. So Harvard is not a public university. It is a private university. So a constitutional argument against Harvard that you're violating the Constitution is not viable. But there is a statute. It's Title VI Civil Rights Act of 1964. And here, here's the key text to it. No person in the United States shall, on the ground of race, color, or national origin, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subject to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. No person on the ground of race shall be excluded, denied the benefits of, or subject to discrimination. This is not a statute that prescribes a balancing test, Sarah. No, and it's also important to note it says person, as in the, it's an individual, not a group. Yeah, yeah. And so this is not a statute that prescribes a balancing test. So why are we applying a constitutional balancing test to this that says, well, there's a, if there's a compelling interest that is, you know, and this is the least restrictive means, yada, yada, yada. Why is that? Because what the court did is say, well, really, Title VI is the 14th Amendment. I mean, what we're going to do is we're going to apply constitutional that, that is co-equal to, it is essentially the same as bringing the Constitution to these private institutions. But that's not what it does on its face. And this is where I think the Justice Gorsuch position might come into play here. He might say, you know what? It says no person. <laughs> shall, on the grounds of race, color, and national origin, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subject to discrimination under any program or activity for receiving federal financial assistance. Where's the ambiguity there? Hashtag Where does it textualism. say we apply? <laughs> yes. Yes. And so that's, to me, that's where, that's the fault line in this case. It is not, did the court properly apply the constitutional balancing test? To me, the fault line is, does the freaking statute control here? And that's or where the Bostock statu- opinion becomes really important because he was Boom. reading Title Seven by its text. And so now the question is, do you read Title Six in the same strict textual analysis? Because um, I, uh, you know, I think you can argue over whether the court applied the balancing test correctly to Harvard. You know, I think probably they did. Harvard does seem to have a fairly, you know, when you're only accepting 1,500 students, they can be pretty um, specific about each of the 1,500 students that is not a mechanical race plus 
and that is not quota-based despite um, what seem to be awfully consistent numbers from class to class. Uh, But nevertheless, they can say that there's other things at issue there. Fine. Again, to the point you're having a balancing test, you've got to let these schools then do some racial balancing, I suppose. So the court has to allow some of it. Therefore, Harvard seems, you know, okay, at least. You You can disagree with the court, but I don't think it's a wildly outrageous opinion. Unless right. you read the text of Title VI. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Um, and then, you, well, let me walk if through you some don't of like the, Title VI, amend it. That's right. If you don't like, yeah. Let me walk through some of the stats that we're dealing with here. So um, Harvard admitted a lower rate between 5 and 6% of Asian American applicants than white applicants, which it admitted at 7 or 8% from 2014 to 2017. It found that while Asian American students tended to score better on Harvard's academic and extracurricular ratings than white applicants, they had worse personal ratings than non-Asian applicants. And so they looked at a uh, uh, regression model that showed that there was a negative correlation between an applicant's personal rating and Asian American identity, even when controlling for various factors related to admission. However, the court in this case, in a sort of sweeping, uh, I have a question here, quote, the court found that correlation does not imply causation. It found that the correlation between race and the personal rating did not mean that race influences the personal rating. Hmm. Huh. Huh. That's odd to me. Because again, I think if you were dealing with a different racial group, um, that it would have, we, we use disproportionate impact all the time and say that that's Mm -hmm. racism. So to say that here it's correlation and not causation, not because we have any real way to say why that would be the case, but we're just, I mean, it doesn't prove causation. No, it doesn't. That's why we have these impact canons in law, which maybe we shouldn't have, but we do. Um, We've got them. They're all over the place. They're all over the place. So here's, though, the one thing that I think um, buffers against the the plaintiffs in this case. The share of admitted Asian American applicants for the classes of 1980 to 2019 increased from 3.4% in 1980 to 20.6% in 2019. The share Mm -hmm. of applicants was 4.1 in 1980 to 22.5 in 2014. So there is some argument that they actually are simply reflecting their applicant pool. Right. Um, I think that you'd need to overcome that. I think that that regression analysis showing that if you're Asian, um, they're using your personal leadership score to ding you when they can't use things that are um, quantitative, like your scores, your extracurricular activities, things like that um, is meaningful. But but I think that applicant thing is interesting and that is a real weight on the other side. Now, when they looked at their non-race-based alternatives, David, though, that's where it, to me, got pretty laughable. Yeah. So they have athletics, legacy, um, dean's list and children of faculty. That's sort of that group of people who get in regardless of their merit, if you will. Um, nearly 70% of that group are white. <laughs> Despite yeah. 
um, the normal set of applicants being only 40% white. So basically the reason that they're having to give this racial plus factor is because they're accepting so many white kids on this ALDC side of things, athletics, legacy, uh, deans. Dean's list, by the way, is not what you think it is. It's not academic-based. And children of faculty. So, uh, okay, that's silly. They say that that's just too small a number. Okay, I'm not saying it's the silver bullet here, but like we could get rid of it. They also said that um, that is important. So the athletics is important for building community in the school. The legacy is important for getting donations to the school. And the children of faculty is important for faculty retention, all of which means that it's not a viable race neutral alternative. Right. I don't see how that's like, okay, so you would get less money from your alumni and then you also wouldn't be discriminating on the basis of race. Like the, yep. <laughs> you have a $40 billion endowment. Maybe we should um, say that those two aren't the same thing, that that is a possible race neutral alternative. Yeah. This is something, Sarah, that I've, yeah. I mean, I think we both could have a whole album side on this because one of the things that sort of happened when you're you're looking at these these IVs are are gateway institutions to they don't guarantee entry uh, success in the United States of America about they're about the closest you can come to go to a, an institution that is going to give you a giant leg up yep in the rest of your life and in your career and there's always been some suspicion you know that hey this isn't really i mean as much as they've opened up from their days of overt discrimination and overt sort of like clubbish insularity that they're not really as meritocratic as they like to present themselves as sort of having this almost scientific admissions process designed to call out from this huge pool of applicants, the best possible people who then go on and do great things. There's always been this sense that no, there's still a thumb out there on these scales and there's still a thumb that favors people on the basis of who their parents are and et cetera, et cetera. And this ALDC, which stands for uh, Recruited Athletes, A, Legacy Applicants, L, Applicants on the Dean's Interest List, which is basically, hey, the Dean says, this person's, say, an important donor or this person's, you know, particularly important because maybe they're famous yeah, for they're, this reason exactly. or that reason. They're famous or the child of a senator, whatever. Exactly. Or children of faculty or staff. So what was stunning to me, because we'd always been assured, oh yeah, we still do legacy, but it's such a small factor. All of this is so small, but it says ALDC applicants make up less than 5% of all applicants who apply, but around 30% of admittees. 30%. In a class of 1,500, that's just overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. That is huge. Yeah. 35% of applicants, around 30% of the admittees. I mean, that's not a thumb on the scales. You know, that is the whole fist on the scales. That is the, that's just standing on the scales. And again, it's around 70% white, 11% Asian, 6% African-American, and 5% Hispanic. So just to be clear, if you got rid of the ALDCs, it would wildly help African-American students and Hispanic students. It would help Asian students a little, it would hurt white students a lot and they are refusing to do it. Yes. 
And, and look, I mean, all of those interests that they identify are actual institutional interests. But don't blow smoke at us and say that what you're doing here is sort of implementing some sort of incredibly scientific, rational, data-based um, engine of meritocracy. <laughs> it is distorting the whole darn thing. It is distorting the whole darn thing. And, and so that's what that people just need to be on. You know, we need to level. They need to level with the American people about this because these are important institutions in our democracy. And, and look, I'm not an Ivy League hater. I'm not a Harvard hater. I'm grateful for the opportunities I got there. I've taught in the Ivy Leagues. These institutions have a lot going for them. I'm not one of these conservatives who say, I hate the academy. I love the academy. I just want it to be better. And the problem is, I wanted to do better because that's thirty percent of their class, and because it's seventy percent white, um, they then have seventy percent of the class left, and that's where they have to do serious racial thumb on the scaling in order to yeah. get a balanced class. And so that just throws off the whole thing. So, okay, another thing that people often point to is why not use socioeconomic considerations instead of race? It correlates with race, but it's not race. And you could get students with really different backgrounds and perspectives who've experienced discrimination of all kinds if that's important to what you think the educational environment is um, if you used simply socioeconomic. So here's what the court found. In order to reach a level of racial diversity similar to what it currently achieves, Harvard would need to give applicants from lower socioeconomic backgrounds such an extreme tip that it would overwhelm other considerations in the admissions process and result in significant changes in the composition of the admitted class. Harvard would admit substantially fewer students with the highest academic, extracurricular, personal, and athletic rating. The Smith Committee found, this was a committee that Harvard itself did internally, found that using socioeconomic status as a proxy for race would result in many non-white students in Harvard's class coming from modest socioeconomic circumstances. Achieving racial diversity in this way would come at the cost of other forms of diversity, undermining rather than advancing Harvard's diversity-related educational objectives. So let's break that apart for a second, David. One, the assumption here is that you're just trying to use another factor other than race to achieve the exact same racial outcome, which to me is still racism. Like saying that <laughs> that's actually admitting that you have a quota, which is odd. Yeah. It's saying, is there some other way for us to get to the same quota outcome? No, there's not. That, that surely is not the standard. Two, and this is, um, they're, they're dancing around this, but here's what that Smith Committee thing is trying to say, that if they use socioeconomic status instead of race, all of the non-white students would be from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and I think what they're saying is they're worried that their other students would then associate being black with being poor, et cetera, and that it is important for the diversity of the class to have black students and Hispanic students from wealthy families and from middle-class families and not just from lower, the lowest socioeconomic rung. Um, I don't disagree with that. I think it is a negative, I think it is a problem <laughs> um, if all of your students of one race are also all from one socioeconomic background, by the way. Uh, they're also saying, of course, and their third little point here is that if they only looked at socioeconomic background instead of race, um, basically the poor kids aren't smart enough 
they don't score high enough on their SAT, so their average SAT score would fall. But here's the problem, David. Harvard is trying to have it all. They want the exact racial balance that they want. They want the exact same SAT scores that they have now. They want everything to stay exactly as it is now, but not use race. Well, guess what? I don't doubt that if you stopped using race as a plus up and plus down for certain students, that yes, your class would not look exactly the same as it does now. That's not a bad thing. That should be a totally acceptable outcome of all of this. Now, how Harvard wants to do that, if they want to say, well, actually, the SAT score is the most important thing to us, okay, then you can use race-neutral ways to get to that by getting rid of your legacies. Or if they want to say um, that the socioeconomic diversity that they have now, having, you know, let's say, a roughly equal number of students from each socioeconomic bracket, though I don't think they do, if that's the most important thing, okay, well, then change your SAT averages. That will help with that but they're unwilling to change anything and then saying, therefore, we must use race. That, that, no, 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 no. That's not strict scrutiny. It is not. I reject it. (laughs) It's very upsetting. Yeah. I mean, and I just keep going back to um, the the statutory interpretation. One of the things that, there are a few things that drive me crazier than flat out judge-made law that completely contradicts democratically enacted statutes <laughs> just con it, it doesn't just twist it doesn't just tweak it it just flat out contradicts it because the current jurisprudence in response to title six which again says you cannot you shall not be excluded on the basis of race or discriminated against on the basis of race shall not now means shall shall as long as it's done in a particularly sophisticated and not super brazen way. Or um, as long as it's as long as we can't find any other way to do it without changing anything else about what we're doing. We don't want to change anything about our admissions criteria, our US yep. News and World Report averages, nothing else. We're willing to not use race if you can find a way to keep everything else the same, including the racial makeup of the class, the socioeconomic makeup of the class, the number of legacy admissions. As long as you don't change any of those things, if then you can come up with a race-neutral way, we'll do that. Oh, you can't? Well, then we have to use race. Yes. Yeah. You nailed it. I can't improve on that. Um, <laughs> I can't improve on that. Well, we'll see if but, it goes to uh, the court. I I think it probably will. Interesting. Okay. I, I am I'm so 50-50 on this. Um, something in the back of my mind says maybe not, but... Um, I know. I know because yeah, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, Fisher was just not that long ago. Um, yep. But Justice Kennedy is gone. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Do we want to talk about DACA briefly? Because we're already running long. We had that, but I'm glad we spent that time on the First Circuit case because, you know, this this is something that, you know, that impacts. And it's not just the Ivies. It's not just the Ivies. Not at all. It is impacting selective admission schools of all kinds all across the United States of America. This isn't a Harvard thing. This is a selective admission school thing. If your school has selective admissions, then this is this comes into play. Well, there's a school, a high school here called Thomas Jefferson High School, TJ, it's called. It at one point was the best high school in the country. Uh, it's always in the top group of the top high schools in the country. It's a magnet school. So it's 
public, but it uses test scores to take sort of the best and brightest into this magnet environment. Um, and over the course of the last 10 or so years, uh, maybe 20 or so years, it has, um, the, because they rely on test scores, it is now overwhelmingly um, Asian. It is majority Asian students. Mm-hmm. And so they just changed it and said they're no longer using test scores at all. Not at all. Not at all, because they don't want it to be majority Asian students. They said that wasn't diverse enough. And again, they had no problem when it was that percentage of white students. Right. The problem was when it was majority Asian students. And um, I don't see how that's not not um, insidious racism. Like, like that's very blatant. The second that the Asian yeah. students started succeeding by the metric that you gave them, you said, never mind, we're going to find a different metric. And this happened with Jew quotas back when they first introduced the SAT, which, by the way, that was Harvard's whole thing about why they wanted uh, to use the SAT was to be able to discriminate against Jews. Um, that you know, Higher education has a long history of when a minority group starts to succeed by the metric that you've provided, then you change the metric to make sure that you don't take too many of that minority. Right. And right. not that much has changed. So one day I should tell, I should tell, we're, I can't right now, but some of my funnier stories of being in the admissions, on the admissions committee at Cornell Law School. Because in addition to all of this, there is also the really amusing thing of reading how, um, reading how applicants try to make their life more interesting and fascinating and often truly artificial ways. <laughs> That's completely off on a tangent, but one day I've got, I've got stories, Sarah. Uh, I've got stories. Okay, last thing here is the DACA case. So if you remember the Supreme Court with Justice Roberts struck down the administration's rescission of the DACA program, that is the uh, folks, the children who were brought here illegally by their parents and was giving them a, a quasi-legal status in the country during the Obama years. The Trump administration tried to rescind that program. The Supreme Court struck it down, saying that they basically just didn't follow the proper procedure for rescinding the program. So then the Trump administration tried once again to do that over uh, the summer with Acting Secretary Chad Wolf. And once again, that has been struck down. <laughs> um, this time in uh, the Eastern District of New York, the district judge in that case held that Chad Wolf, the Acting Secretary, is not legally acting as the Acting Secretary because of the special law that dictates the line of succession in the Department of Homeland Security. And because he was not lawfully serving as the acting secretary of Homeland Security, he did not have the authority to issue the memorandum. Although separately, it also found that that memorandum was arbitrary and capricious in violation of the Administrative Procedures Act. So, David, you know what? The legal side of this isn't that relevant. Right. The part that's particularly relevant here is that for four years, the administration tried to undo a memo, a memo by the previous administration and was thwarted by the courts for the entirety of the four years. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, 
you know, again, going back to the frustration that I think a lot of Trump voters feel about, you know, oh, why won't you just accept the results of the election, which we refuse to accept from 2016 to 2019? Um, <laughs> I think that t- stuff like this, where um, you're you're unwilling to let a policy move forward because clearly you just don't like the policy being pursued by that administration is a real problem. I was thinking about this last night. I've used this example before, but this is what it reminds me of. I told you about my calculus class where I got a D and my friend got an A and the teacher said, oh, it's not that she got the answers right. Or sorry, it's not that you also got the answers right. It's that she also got the answers wrong. I just didn't grade hers wrong. And it's the same thing we see in some of these, um, uh, you know, racial claims about police work. It's not that you didn't maybe roll through that stop sign. It's that lots of people roll through the stop sign. We just don't pull them over unless they're black. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is the same thing. You're telling me that there's never been an APA violation in any of these memos done by any previous administration. No, of course there are. But we're going to call the APA violations on the Trump administration because we don't like the policy. That is a problem, David. And it is a problem because you don't want to run government with this ticky-tack legal stuff thwarting policies of an elected branch by an unelected branch. And if the same thing happens for four years in the Biden administration, it will be bad for the country, I say. And the same thing's going to happen. I mean, <laughs> I'll just go ahead and get to the spoiler alert. Look, what what we're, we're in a position where there are urgent national issues that they're, the legislature, and because of gridlock and because of polarization and divided government and blah, 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 there is not going to be a legislative solution. One is not imminent. So what each president does in his or her turn is then they say, okay, I'm going to use the huge executive authority that I've been wrongly granted by the judicial branch, by the way, um, to fix this, at least during my term. Well, they try to do that. They try to fix it. But then immediately you have uh, a coalition of attorneys general or, or lawyers who then say, ah, not so fast. I'm going to sue you to stop it, but I'm not going to just sue you anywhere. I'm not going to, you know, just choose any place to sue you. I'm going to go to a favorable jurisdiction where the chances are quite good that I'll pull a judge at the, you know, in the random allocation that I'm going to be pretty confident is going to issue an injunction stopping you. Who agrees with the policy and- outcomes that I am trying to pursue. That's the dangerous part. An unelected judge pursuing policy outcomes. So then the unelected judge pursuing a policy outcome, as soon as that initial injunction is issued, just even if you pursue appeals with all due deliberate speed or all due, you know, as expeditiously as you can, all of a sudden you have put the brakes on a process. And then the clock is ticking for the next presidential election. Well, and for instance, in this case, they do not have time to appeal this before they will leave office. So this second memo that rescinded DACA is just gone now, and that's the end of it. And so the administration got like one full bite at the apple, one time up to the Supreme Court, they lost. And then the Supreme Court said, but here's all you have to do to get it right. They did that. And then... A district court said, no, actually, there's other stuff, too. Yeah. Well, and and this is independent, like this, this is independent of the policy merits of 
DACA rescission. So, oh, yes. for example, you know, I want dreamers to be able to stay in the United States. I want people who are brought into this country, but through no fault of their own, who are contributing members of our society. I do not want them deported. I want that codified by statute. <laughs> I want that in a statute. If you have a series of memos from presidents, we're going to be dealing with this competing court decisions, uh, injunctions, uh, reversals, more injunctions, more reversals, more uncertainty indefinitely. And it's intolerable. It's not compatible with the intention of our system. And it puts the political system under strain for all the reasons that you've said, Sarah. Okay. Last thing. We'll give it somewhat short shrift, and that is canceling yep. Baby Yoda. So uh, this is not a spoiler in terms of the plot development, but it is a spoiler in terms of something that happens in the show. So if you haven't watched Mandalorian Season 2, Episode 2, just, you know, maybe go ahead and turn this off if you plan to watch it. Okay, you've turned it off. Now, for those who are continuing, <laughs> in Episode 2... Um, there is a character that is trying to get her unfertilized frog eggs to another planet. And Baby Yoda, it turns out, thinks frog eggs are tasty and keeps eating the frog eggs. And she says um, that if she doesn't get these eggs to the new planet, to her husband to fertilize them, that, quote, her line will end. We don't know if that means her family or her species. I didn't mm -hmm. give this much thought, David, but all of a sudden in Vanity Fair... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, Vanity Fair must have changed quite a bit since the last time I checked in with Vanity Fair, by the way. Um, but, quote, Baby Yoda canceled amid accusations of genocide. <laughs> yeah. So the claim is that by sort of having this light motif throughout the episode of humor, every time Baby Yoda sneaks an egg, that they're making humorous stuff out of genocide. Um, mind you, this is a fraudulent, I mean, a, a, a fictional 50-year-old baby eating a fictional unfertilized egg of a sentient frog being <laughs> trying to get them through space and avoiding some very large spiders on an ice planet. Um, and we're using this as genocide. Look, uh, <laughs> if you are a vegan, I was very willing to, I guess, maybe have like a, it's not okay to eat other sentient species eggs conversation. Um, I guess I would have been interested if we were having this conversation about fertilized eggs. You know, where does life begin, David? Maybe the pro-life mm -hmm. community and the pro-choice community. We're going to have it out in this fictional episode. <laughs> I am not here. For the, it is now um, genocide to eat unfertilized frog eggs in a fictional universe. Um, and by the way, in episode three, it turns out they only fertilize one egg. They have plenty of eggs and they have a little tadpole and baby Yoda is playing with the tadpole, not eating the tadpole. Um, yeah. Our, I mean, maybe now that the 2020 election is over, we're just trying to find new things to be outraged over, David? You know, I, what it is, is, as we have said many times, Baby Yoda, also known as the child. And by the way, um, Baby Yoda is the name of my primary Wi-Fi network at my house. Um, the other one is Han Fired First. Uh, but the, so 
here you have this pop culture sensation, really, that's one of the few things that we have left, Sarah. It's one of the few things that everybody likes. So we can't have nice things. We can't have a thing that everybody likes. And also the content monster must be fed. Uh, the content monster that says um, we, we need to find and locate controversial, problematic, bad takes and purge them or bad, uh, bad art and purge it from society. And, the, the, you know, it's just exhausting. It's exhausting. And, but here's the thing, though. I think more and more people are over it. I really do. This is something, and I don't know if you think I'm wrong about this. I'd, be, I'd love your thoughts on this. But I do think the problematic pop culture take culture is maybe been checked a little bit, maybe in retreat a little bit. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going more by sort of like my gut feel and my gut instinct, but it feels like we've sort of had a peak of this. I'm going to find this problematic saying, no matter how absurd and no matter how strained, and I'm going to highlight it and I'm going to force change or force some sort of apology. I don't know. I just feel like it's, it's peaked. Um, this is something that resulted in a lot of sort of mockery of the, the critique. Um, and it, uh, and in this next episode, there was another problematic moment, quote unquote problematic that we can talk about. We don't, don't really need to, but again, roundly kind of roundly mocked and roundly critiqued. And so I, I don't know, I I'm, feeling like maybe I'm wildly optimistic that this hypersensitivity is receding, that not all those who are hypersensitive are obviously receding, but the, our vulnerability to the hypersensitivity is receding or, or the audience for the hypersensitivity is receding. I don't know. What do you think? Well, Vanity Fair did update their story. Uh, in nice. the latest episode, which dropped Friday morning, Baby Yoda himself was swallowed alive by a giant sea creature, learning a valuable lesson about what it's like to be the appetizer. It ended with him playing <laughs> nice with one of Frog Lady's new polywogs. Given the redemptive turn, it appears his cancellation has itself been canceled. The tongue-in-cheek nature with which they wrote this, I think, uh, is evidence to your point, David. Yes. <laughs> I do not think that their take was popular. Uh, even amongst the readers of Vanity Fair, which is probably not a, if there's a Venn di diagram between dispatch readers and dispatch advisory opinions listeners and Vanity Fair readers, I don't think there's much overlap. So if even Vanity Fair readers did not like the cancellation of Baby Yoda, maybe, maybe there's light at the end of the cancel culture tunnel. So wouldn't it be fantastic if Baby Yoda canceled cancel culture? <laughs> so perfect. Yes. All right, yes. Thursday, we've got a lot lined up. And no doubt there will be new developments in the never-ending, or at least never-ending until January uh, 2021 saga of the election contest. Uh, so we'll have updates. We've got a discussion of imminence that I promise you will be more interesting than it sounds. It will be interesting. I get asked about this all the time. So looking forward to it. And so we will be back on Thursday. Please check out thedispatch.com. Please rate us on iTunes. We really appreciate, not iTunes, Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it. And uh, again, uh, also, I want to thank our members for helping make our What's Next event last week uh, a resounding success. We had some really uh, outstanding conversations with 
opinion makers and newsmakers and your participation was critical. We really appreciate it. All right, we will see you on Thursday. <laughs>